Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a special guest and a special podcast today. It's William B. Miller, Jr., And even though we've gotten really specific on his name, there's still other William Miller Juniors. Uh, He's in Arizona. He was a radiologist for, I guess, approximately 30 years. And he went through an evolution himself. And now he's an evolutionary biologist. He's become a a friend. And I've asked him hundreds and hundreds of questions about various uh, aspects of science and biology. And he's he's tolerated them and answered them. I wanted to have him today because um, one of his papers that he submitted and was improved uh, by progress in biophysics and molecular biology, I understand it. It took me many reads and many conversations to understand it. The ideas in it, I think, are incredibly important for all of science in general. And I say that from my perspective of having interviewed 2,600 people in the past four years. So I want to go through the paper with Bill and have him explain the background of it. And um, it's so dense the information and knew that we're, we're probably going to just go through the abstract and define everything in it. But uh, anyone that wants to read the paper or at least get an idea of it, I think this will help. So Bill, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, it's a privilege. Thank you for having me on. I want to assure your listeners that although I may have undergone a personal evolution, I still only have two legs and two arms. I haven't changed that much yet. <laughs> Excellent. So the paper, we'll start with the name. Uh, it, it's called Cellular Sonomic Measurements in cognition-based evolution. So just to define some terms, what is a senome? The senome is the totality of the sensory apparatus of a cell. But even that's awfully complicated to say it and to have people understand it that are unfamiliar with all the background that goes into knowing what that exactly means. So let's, let's, let's explicitly talk about what this paper is about. And putting it in the most familiar terms, mm. this paper is about the concept that it's not your father's evolution. This paper is meant to explain an entirely new way of looking at biology and its evolution. And and what the paper is mostly concerned with is the concept called cognition-based evolution. And I'm gonna explain what that means. And for the sake of our, a better understanding it together, let's just talk for a minute about what has been believed so that we can contrast it with where biology has to go in order to make progress in understanding its evolutionary history. Okay. So almost everyone that's listening will know a little bit about Darwin. And and let's not mistake the fact that although I'm going to talk about the limits of natural selection, Darwin was a brilliant man and he is a most important scientific figure. So though I'm going to talk about the reasons that we should no longer consider neo-Darwinism and certain tenets of Darwinism as primary. I don't want anyone that's listening to imagine that I have anything but the greatest regard for Darwin as a scientist, but for a reason that most of the listeners won't anticipate. Darwin is known for two, well, for multiple specific aspects in biology, 
But the major ones, the sturdy pillars that he came up with was um, linking the concept of variation to the concept of natural selection. So most people know about natural selection. So if you ask people, well, what does that mean? They're gonna say, oh, that's survival of the fittest. And more or less, that, that's pretty accurate. But Darwin didn't come up with natural selection. Uh, that was an idea that was floating around without, uh, before Darwin, even his, his grandfather knew a little bit about it, uh, an arborist, a botanist named Matthews, Patrick Matthews, hmm. about 30 years prior had published in a magazine which and Darwin was familiar with the work, that uh, the concept of, of natural selection. And it was framed in its proper perspective. And, and so did Wallace, uh, the great uh, biologist in the South Seas. He, they all understood, or Southeast Asia, they understood that natural selection simply re relates to the fact that an organism need, needs to fit its environment. But what Darwin understood, which no one before him had articulated, was that variations in the way organisms presented themselves to the environment were subject to filtering. They, they were subject to, to being uh, differentiated. And that if, if you connected those processes over and over long enough, you could get a process called evolution. You could get the, um, the her heritable transfer of differing variations over time. And that natural selection offered a, a filtering, a process in which uh, some variations were favored and others were not. Well, what happened, short, Darwin's ideas didn't receive absolute approval. There were many brilliant people that thought it was magnificent, but there was a lot of people that thought it was insufficient. And Darwin actually, Darwin's theories went into a bit of a decline for about 50 years. But when genetics really became better understood in the 1950s, the, the real um, impetus for the Darwinism going forward was the marriage of genetic studies with natural selection. The idea was, and this is what neo-Darwinism is, so, and this is where the, the majority of evolution stands right now. Evolution is due to random genetic variations that are judged, as it were, by natural selection. And there are some substantial problems with this uh, that we're going to talk about, and we'll talk about uh, a distinct alternative uh, to this. And the primary reason for the alternative is Darwin is correct about variations, but the source of variations that occur in biology are not random genetic ones. So in your abstract, the first five words say all living entities are cognitive. So yes. let's just discuss yes, that in relation to what you've just said. Right. Exactly. Thank you. Why, why we gave this preamble? was that in the neo-Darwinist interpretation of things, cells and, and almost all organisms that are not human organisms are mostly automatons. They, they mostly react to stimuli and almost like they were machines. In fact, it is very common in the literature to regard cells particularly and almost all organisms except humans as living machines. The difference, the first line of the abstract addresses the essence of the difference between cognition-based evolution and neo-Darwinism. The difference is that scientific investigations, thorough, unimpeachable scientific investigations have proved that all cells are intelligent. Now let's talk about what that means, cognitive, cognitive intelligence. What does that mean for a cell? 
It means that a cell can receive information, assess it, and deploy its resources, but to do so in the manner of problem solving, to communicate to other cells purposefully that it's what it measures about that information and why they've measured it the way they have. And, and this is extremely important. Intelligence let's, let's give a couple of uh, examples on that. So I'll, I'll put out one. I don't know if this is even valid, but I want you to give one. So cells can display molecules on their surface that will let our immune system know to, you know, get rid of them or that they're in some state of problem. That's perhaps one no, example. Absolutely. But I'll go a little further. I, that's an excellent example. When I say cells are intelligent, what I mean is that they are intelligent to the point of not only where they can discriminate one molecule from another, because we could create an automaton that could do that. No, I'm talking about sheer intelligence, impressive intelligence, like the ability to solve a maze, the ability to uh, remember, to have memory, the ability, for example, to collectively work together to understand very subtle differences in chemotactic gradients. These are all signs of intelligence. There's another sign of cognition in cells. Cells work together. They don't just work together haphazardly. Throughout the very beginning of evolution, cells have worked together in a consistent set of patterns. They collaborate, they cooperate, they're codependent, and they are competitive. But all of those work together from the very beginning of life. So why do I say that? Well, we know that the Earth formed about 4.1 billion years ago. And there's very good evidence that life began rather quickly, three, about 3.8 billion years ago. But here's the important thing, Rich. That life that we're able to define is based on fossil evidence. And let's, let's not forget, cells don't generally leave fossils. The only way they can leave a fossil is if they come together in a community. And these are called stromatolites. And these are microbial mats. What they represent are the living proof that cells self-organize into complex communities. But here's further. They self-organize into complex communities from the very first evidence that we have any life at all. In other words, it's the ground state of the living circumstance is intelligent cells measure information. And why do they get together into collaborative things like biofilms, stromatolites or biofilms. These are complex, think of them like cities of microorganisms of, of bacteria, of archaea, you know, of protists of tiny unicellular organisms that choose to live together. And the question is why, did, why have they chosen to live together since the dawn of life? Why not just live separately? Why do we have cells that stay together that are small rather than simply huge cells. I mean, we, we, could have, we could think of a biological system in which there are only scattered huge cells, but they, it's not that way. And, but there's a good reason why, because all cells are intelligent. Intelligence is the ability to assess information. It is the, and further, it's the ability to assess information to solve problems, which is called adaptation. So Stephen Hawking had a great definition of intelligence. Intelligence is the ability to adapt. And that's what cells do. But they can only adapt because they are able to intelligently assess environmental stresses and determine their best way to meet them. Well, how do cells meet them? They 
form collaborative associations since the dawn of life. And why do they form those associations? They form it because, and this is a very important issue for intelligence cells, part of their intelligence is knowing that the information that they have is imperfect. So you and I go through our lives, we know that the information we have is imperfect. And we've, we look at animals on the savanna and they see threats or not, they're not sure about what, what things are. We know that they see as information is imperfect. So do our cells. Every single thing that we can see with our eyes is a complex multicellular organism. So even our cells know that information is imperfect. And that's very important because if information was perfect, it wouldn't need to be measured. But information is ambiguous. It is uncertain. So it does have to be measured by a cell to assess whether or not to deploy its scarce resources to maintain itself. You gave me this example a while ago. If I look at the moon, my brain can say, okay, it's not just a flat 2D thing. It's a 3D object. There's stuff behind it that I can't see, but it is there. Right. Well, I think that's that's a perfect example. We could imagine, in fact, we we have that in our in our own political system. All of us are getting the same, more or less, I mean, if you look at populations, getting the same inputs of sources of information. But we each, we each evaluate them very differently. We have differences in assessing whether a temperature is a threat to us or not. Some people think certain temperatures, certain ambient temperatures are great. Others regard them as uncomfortable. It's that we, we tend to call that simple preference, but it is ambiguous information. It is information that can be judged. It can be looked at from different sides. It's there, it, there's no absoluteness to information. It's the same way for a cell that it is for us. And so a cell wants to improve the quality of the information that it can get because it wants to, to be as efficient as it can be to maintain its own state of preference. And therefore, it will collaborate with other cells to help measure it. It's the wisdom of crowds. This is why I want to micro each thing you're saying, because to you, it's conversant and comfortable and all that. But I just remember going through this with you and it took a long time. Like, you know, for instance, when you say cells are intelligent, I can feel a lot of my past guests blanching and saying, what do you mean they're intelligent? They're not intelligent. They're just automatons. And so, you know, we, we probably need to say, well, they're intelligent in their own way. It may be totally alien to you as a human that a cell can be intelligent, but they are. So that's that's one, uh, you know, it's an over, I guess maybe we you could say we're over-talking it, but I think that's important in this conversation. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. No, I think you're, 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 you're exactly right. I, I think, you know, one of the problems that you have when you're very familiar with the topic is it becomes so clear cut that you can't remember that it's complicated. I remember taking a physics class, which is certainly not my natural state. And the professor was a brilliant guy. And he was frustrated with the entire class because the Schrodinger equations for the electron K shells were obvious to him. I mean, who couldn't understand that? Well, how about all of us? <laughs> None of us could. And so, no, I, I completely understand, but there, the difference, uh, the way to look at intelligence, I think, and have people understand is that automatons would have all cells would respond to the same stimulus in almost or exactly the same way. 
but that's not how it works in the human body or any cellular organism. Cells make discretionary decisions. Each cell, yes, they, of course they work together collaboratively so that we can function as large organisms, but each cell is its own individual unit. Each has what we term self-reference. It is an individual. And, and this is a very important aspect of cognition-based evolution because it isn't considered in neo-Darwinism. It's not an important point to them. And I'll, I'll give you further examples why it's important. Uh, let's talk about ourselves as multicellular organisms. We're termed, we are what are termed holobionts. So many of the listeners will know that each of us is a combination of our own cells, my Bill Miller cells, and I, my, my partner, and then everyone else that's listening does too, with trillions, maybe as many as 100 trillion other non-Bill Miller cells, microbes of all different varieties of bacteria, the extremophile, archaea, viruses, and all of them are working together in a common outcome, and each of them has its own self-identity. Each of them is working to protect itself and finds that it can do it best in the collaborative form. And that's how we can be this, this exquisite organism that we are, the combination of our own cells and this vast array of microbial cells. And the reason that I'm emphasizing it is, it would be easy for your listeners to imagine, well, you know, yeah, I got a hundred trillion hangers on. This, you know, they're either, they're not hurting me or they're just hanging around, but that's not the way we actually work. We have found out in the last couple of decades that our partnership with these microbes is absolutely essential. They form very vital parts of our metabolism, our physiology. They are the first line of defense against those microbes that seek to, to harm us, the pathogenic microbes. They are with us from the moment of, uh, even in the fetal stage, either directly from the womb or from the influence of the maternal metabolism, which is itself influenced by the, these microbes. They affect our development. Our developmental stages are in fact, in part due to the microbial, their own calendar. Our immune system develops in concert. We co-develop with them. We've co-developed over evolutionary time with them. And so we cannot be separated from them without harm. And all of them have their own form of intelligence and all of them are acting together to make us what we are. Yeah. So again, I, I know I'm pressing you for details, 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 but an example. So what's an example of biological ambiguous information that tells you a microbe or a cell has a sense of self and is evaluating something that's not clear cut? Here's an example. When a mother is breastfeeding, it would be natural to assume that the purpose of breastfeeding is exclusively to feed the infant. And if information, the, the metabolic information, the metabolic sources were exclusively directed towards that, it would have a specific composition. But as it turns out, part of breastfeeding is to feed the partnering microbiome of the areola, that's the area right around the nipple and the nipple itself. And part of it is to feed the breast tissue back along the breast ducts because there's back and forth communication. And each of them evolve in, in assesses the environment in its own way to utilize the, the 
metabolic, uh, the nutritional characteristics of that breast milk to its own advantage. But, and each of them are part of the whole. So it is a, an extraordinary collective form that is only just beginning to be understood. Yeah, to expand that on a little bit, I did interview a lady that talked about the composition of breast milk. And she said there's, I guess, what's called oligosaccharides, sugars that people cannot digest. And the only conclusion is that they're there so that bacteria that can digest them, that are beneficial to the baby, will take up residence in the baby's digestive tract. Otherwise, there's no explanation for why they would be there. That's exactly right. And so you would say, well, I, you know, we can conceive of uh, little robotic cells and, and microbes in there. They all work together to, to yield this outcome. But that makes no sense. In fact, the only way that it can actually work is that each of the participants assesses its background environmental data and problem solves in its own way, but does so under the explicit rules that have governed life over 3.8 billion years, collaboration, cooperation, codependence, and competition. Each of them are vital. The, the primary message of ourselves is actually quite direct. You serve yourself best when you're in service to others. This, this is a major difference between neo-Darwinism and cognition-based evolution. The interchange, the cell-cell communication that is going on all the time that enables us to sustain our lives is each cell being in service to others. And that's very non-Darwinian. The, the concept that you will read in the, if you read the literature on Darwinism is always about selection pressures. It's always about uh, natural selection. It's always about competition. Yes, there is, of course, this competition. We see it in but, our But lives. in order to have competition, there has to be a drive to win. And for what purpose? And winning means I win. It, it, competition doesn't mean you win. It means I win. That's why yeah, I you know, We always take a slice that pleases us. So let me give a, a quick example. So I've emphasized over and over already that what is the most important aspect of biology? Uh, I've, I've talked about cooperation, cooperation, codependence, competition, which is mutualized. And you'd say, oh, okay, well, I'll tell you, what, let, let's go to the Serengeti and tell me all about it. When the cheetah gets the gazelle, tell me all about the cop, you know, the co collaboration. You're only seeing the very tip of the process. The whole, what about all of the trillions of cells that are cooperating in the cheetah to allow it to do its job, all operating under the explicit terms that I just mentioned, and for the gazelle. And if you look at the dynamics of the entire ecology, you will see that it's even, even in that instance of the competition, all sorts of, of, of things are occurring that are also collaborations. For example, when the cheetah is eating the gazelle, it is going to metabolize those cells and it's going to be dropping them on the savannah, and that's going to fertilize the savannah, and other animals are going to chew on the bones, and so on, and insects are going to have their day. And you end up with a system that can't be understood under simplistic notions of merely nature, red, and tooth, and claw. The funny example of, you know, if you're pregnant, you're eating for two, but if you're an organism, you're eating for two trillion. Yeah, no, actually, here's here's... You know, we talk about uh, the ambiguity of information and how different cells see it differently. So 
Here's a fact about how we as holobionts, this, this exquisite combination of our own cells and partnering microbiomes, when we're eating, we naturally assume that we determine when we're full, but that's not correct. We do to some degree determine when we're full because we have free will and, and so on. But when you look at the actual dynamics in the stomach, and this is experiments that have been performed in France, they're very good ones, you will find out that there is a biphasic response of, of bacteria in the stomach and the duodenum. The duodenum is that part of the intestine that connects to the stomach. This has its own population. It has its own localized microbiome. And when we start to eat, those microbes, which have already signaled you to be hungry because their population has dwindled, they don't, they've stopped their reproductive cycle. And remember, the reproductive cycle of microbes can be measured in, in minutes, hours. And it's not like humans, which is years or you know months or days. So you're hungry in part because they're hungry. You start to eat, and as they metabolize, because you fed them, you're giving them food, that they, that they, you, they can break down that food and utilize it. They, they switch up a certain set of peptides that they give off. And those peptides go to the stomach lining and they go through the neuroenteric system, the, the vast number of nerves that connect the gut to the brain. And it sends off signals to your brain and it starts to tell you that you're full. So getting full is not just your stomach getting filled with food and bigger. It's really a combination of your microbes feeling sated, feeling as though they've had enough, and they signal you that it's okay. So one of the ways for people to figure out how to control how much they eat is to simply say to themselves, well, I'll tell you what, before I have that piece of pie, I'll wait 20 minutes. Because we already know that 20 minutes later, a lot of the times you're no longer really that hungry. It's all about giving your time, giving your microbes time to send their signals to your brain. It's complicated. So theoretically, you could eat um, exactly what the bacteria in your digestive system want, and you know also some of the things that your cells want, and probably eat what you'd consider normally to be half a meal in terms of volume of food, and feel sated completely. Well, yeah, yeah and we could e we could even derive an experiment at some point. I'm sure we will because we're entering an era of the cell where we're, we're at a wonderful new moment in biology where we're beginning to really understand cellular dynamics and cell-cell communication in a way that we never had before in our entire human history. So we're on a new threshold. One way in weight may be manipulated in the future, certain, certainly hunger uh, and I mean, uh, weight control will be almost certainly affected by it will be a set of probiotics that you will take either on a daily basis or perhaps just prior to a meal in which you will be artificially zooming up the microbial count in your stomach to make you feel full. Someday, this will not be science fiction because we already know from certain, uh, certain research studies that probiotics, especially in adolescence, are pretty useful in weight reduction. Uh, prebiotics and probiotics have their uses, and that's already been peer-reviewed. So, uh, you know, I'm not just making things up here. Th this is where we're going to be going. We're going to understand this partnership to a much greater degree. And when we understand the partnership on that scientific level, level we'll also understand our evolution much better than we did before.
So, all right, so, yeah, con continuing on, and I'm beating, I'm deliberately beating this up to make it super clear. So let's let's go back to again the name of the paper and senome. So I look at it as my senses are, you know, hearing, smell, touch, sight, taste, the basic five. I'm sure there's more. So what are a cell's senses? Is that what you mean by its senome, its sensory apparatus? Yeah, it's, it, for cells, it, it is those sets of processes that when they are combined, yield our own senses. So what do I mean by that? It's a combination of, of bioactive molecules that they send to each other. That's part of their senome. Cells sense the biofields, electrical biofields. There's an electron. They are sensitive to sound. They're sensitive to, to photons. Certain cells, obviously our retinal cells are sensitive to photons. They're sensitive to certain quantum mechanical properties. So our, our retinal cells are sensitive to the quantum mechanical properties of photons uh, at, at the single photon level. They are sensitive to uh, all of the environmental things. They're sensitive to heat and to, uh, uh, to what's called proprioception, which is to touch. Uh, it depends on, on what part of the body. So each cell, each differentiated cell, will have its own set of cues among the vast array of potential cues that possibly exist. Each cell will have its own set of things that are sufficient to stimulate. And the combination of those, the aggregation of all those, that's the senon, that's the combination of the sensing apparatus of any particular cell, which need not be identical to every other cell in the body. So how do you, how do you know that um, it's important for cells to cooperate? Well, it's an example of that and why, and what if they didn't cooperate, what would we have? Well, you wouldn't have us, you wouldn't have any biofilms. So what, uh, we know, uh, for example, an excellent example are biofilms. Biofilms are, as I mentioned, they are the combinations of microbes that are sometimes are of one strain, one particular strain, but most often are a combination of many different microbial strains and even different uh, domains, um, uh, different cellular types, uh, and even including viruses. And they will form complex patterns of arrangements uh, that are just almost just like cities. You can go on the web and find um, nice videos that illustrate the complexity of biofilms, which for all intents looks like Tokyo. And uh, they are able to utilize resources and measure the environment better collectively than they can apart. The fact is the example of multicellularity of, of cells working together to measure together is everything. It isn't, you, you have to ask, you have to look hard to find the examples when this does not happen. You have to go to separate diatoms in the ocean, plankton that are not even, you know, that are separate cells and they're not aggregated side by side, but even there, they have a, a, a surrounding matrix of, of, of their own microbiome that is, is, so even when they're separately floating, and you'd say, well, these are separate cells that have no relationship to other cells. It's very rarely that case. They're called freestanding, but they're not really free. They are still being getting information, measuring information collectively with others that are close by. If something's called a single-celled organism, do you, do you think that's a, uh, a misnomer? Do you think that hides what it really is? No, I think it's a useful thing to think about because... The cell is the unit of intelligence, the unit of self-reference. 
It, it is simply correct that single cells can stay alive just as a single cell. So it is a valid, separate living form. What is important about single cells is what we, what we now know about them that we didn't know before. They don't like being that way. In fact, they don't like being that way so much that they hardly are ever that way. And from that, that observation alone, we, we have to devise an entirely different evolutionary narrative because we have to answer why is multicellularity the dominant living form? And the answer is because intelligent cells measure and they measure better together than apart. What are they measuring? Information. Information is environmental stresses. Those stresses are individually evaluated by every cell. Collectively, they measure them better than apart. From that, what do, what do they get from that? Energy efficiency, an advantaged ability to communicate. All of these things are vital. What do we learn from that that is different from uh, neo-Darwinism? We learn that since the major issue for cells is intelligence, and we know also that the epicenter of intelligence in cells are not genes alone. In other words, it takes every aspect of the cell for the cell to be uh, an intelligent unit. It, it means that genes are tools. So in Darwinism, genes determine outcomes because genetic frequency determines the forms that we'll see. In cognition-based evolution, Genes are tools of cells that need to measure information properly. And when they can measure information together collectively, that's engineering. And then they, they engineer outcomes. So this, this is the hardest thing, Rich, I think, for the listeners to, uh, and I hope I can explain it in a way, and you'll help me. We start from a new plateau, a new starting position, which is intelligent cells. All cells are intelligent. Because they're, they're intelligent, their intelligence is defined by the fact that they can measure information. What this means is they are able to combine those measurements in the collective form. And when they do that, that's engineering. So when, what, when humans want to build a city, you have a, each individual human is individually intelligent. Each problem solves according to its abilities. And then humans together collaborate, cooperate, codependent, and they compete and they build a city. Well, let's give an example of, um, you know, humans are going to put up a new building on the corner. What, what are the elements that they need? And let's, let's mirror that in, in cells. The, the overlap is, is nearly explicit. You'd get a group of humans together and they would have, they communicate, they would assess information. It could be a, a plan. They would assess it. They would communicate between themselves. They would encounter problems and problem solve together. And then they would produce a form, a building. This is precisely what cells do in their own way. Cells are not intelligent in the way we are. They, they, they don't look at problems in the way we do. It's almost as if we're talking about an alien form of life. It, it is a different form of intelligence. Just as I would say, pretend to think like a bat. Well, you'd say, you can't think like a bat. I mean, bats think like bats. Exactly right. There's no way for a human to imagine what a bat thinks, but there's no question that bats think. Well, let's, let's bring it to uh, back to the, the engineering example. Here's what I'm going to ask you. So on one, one picture in my mind is a bunch of little guys in hard hats building a building. And the other picture is a bunch of you know cells. I'll put you know hard hats on them too. And they're building a liver. Both need a blueprint 
both need a common language that the blueprint would be written or diagrammed in and both need to be able to understand the blueprint and execute it and engineer. So is that is that enough in the comparison or is there more to it? And what does that suggest to you? I mean, you know, it's your example, by the way, but what does that suggest by saying that? Well, I thank you for leading me where I wanted to go anyway, but it's a particularly good introduction. You've pointed out that there has to be a coordinating platform for humans to engineer successfully together. There has to be a common language. There has to be a, a way to have concordant measurements, measurements that, that make sense. I mean, as simple as we're all going to use the foot as our, the way that these plans, we're going to read them according to feet. We all agree. You couldn't build a building with some guys building according to feet and some guys building according to, to meters and some guys dreaming up their own. Oh, you know, it's going to be, uh, uh, we're going to have a new measurement. That'll be what would be the equivalent of 12.14 centimeters. I mean, you, you just couldn't do that. You have to have a platform where the measurements can be resolved among all the players. And that exists uh, in, in this paper that you're talking about. There's a concept called end space. It is too complicated to go through it in this conversation. But let me just say that it is an important part of cognition-based evolution that we understand that there has to be an intermediate platform between the environment and the biological form. There has to be a place where all of the cells can coordinate their environmental experiences, measure them in some kind of a shared way to produce corresponding useful outputs instantaneously. It's not just a matter of them going back and forth nicely and over time, they argue it out and, and it's okay. No, it's instantaneous. And so it, that platform has to exist and that platform has to be a very difficult concept, which is it has to be information itself. It, this is a very difficult aspect of biology because we in biology always want to think about things in very concrete biological terms. They have to be molecules or they have to be a measurable energy. But the problem about information is that it is not explicitly energy or physical in the way we tend to think of them. And yet it is both. When you see a computer, when you're out working on a computer, even what we're doing right now, information is being exchanged. And it's not, if you had to say, well, give me the form of this information. Well, I can't give you a molecule that represents this information. But there's no question that we're, we have an information platform. And yes, it's, it's made up of connectors and computer components and so on. But there's more. There is more to it than that. And that's information space. And it's, it's a very well-respected concept uh, among scientists. And that's an important part. There has to be a way for all of these cells that are that are individually intelligent and individually desirous of protecting themselves to measure together so well that they can collaborate and cooperate and, and even compete. Yeah, I mean, so one example of is again, if, if uh, you know, I'm an, an embryo and my organs are being developed, how is it across you know? I don't know, 120 billion people that have ever lived, that the liver is always in a certain position and usually a certain shape and size. And it's in certain opposition to the pancreas and the stomach and all the other stuff. And again, it has certain shape and size and function and all that. And it's pretty 
reliable. The plans aren't always 100%, but a vast majority of the time they are. And where are those plans kept and how are they interpreted and what language is used to interpret them? And you know, where does the coordination come from and the feedback on is everything going well or not? When do we stop? When do we you know, start building this part of it, et cetera? Well, in, in neo-Darwinism, what we have believed in the past, it was assumed uh, by many that that coordination was the genome. And the Human Genome Project, which was instituted almost a couple of decades ago now, had fulfilled its mission of successfully defining the human genome. And I must say, it's disappointed us because what we thought we would find explicit answers to, we've only found renewed questions. So for example, we thought that we would find specific genes that would control whether you're left-handed or right-handed. You'd say, well, you know, it's got to be pretty simple. It's got to be this gene or that. Gene. Well, it turns out that the more you know about the genome, the less you understand. It is so complicated. It is so overlapping. There isn't one gene for most things. It's, a, it's, a, it's almost always a consortium. Not only is it a consortium, it's a consortium that has liberties and constraints based on accessory aspects of genetic material that reside in the cellular compartments. Uh, it relates to, to protein populations and protein domains. The end result is you, we haven't been rewarded so far, and that doesn't mean we won't be in the future, but so far, the only thing we know for sure is the one-to-one the -one correlation between traits, uh, let's say eye color and uh, genes, we can't find that yet. And maybe it's there to be teased out in the future, but it isn't there. Certainly complex personality traits like schizophrenia or autism no one can trace that genetically at this moment. But there's a larger, that there's another important message, Rich, that I, that I think the listeners should understand. Although it is imperative for us, for our genome is imperative for us to be what we are, it isn't the thing that controls what we are. There's more to it than that. And there are a lot of theories out there about uh, specialized developmental processes. So you'd say, well, all you need to do to understand uh, why the liver is on one side and not on the other is, is it's all in the genes. It's all in the way the genes express themselves. Well, to a degree, that's true. But the problem is the genes don't control the delivery of that expression, not themselves. They are being controlled. And so now we need to understand what's controlling this basically genetic software that resides within a cell so that you get the expression of proteins. The, the translation from RNA to proteins that is necessary for us to sustain ourselves. And there are lots of theories, whether some people think it's electrical fields and some have very complicated concepts of morphogenetic fields. My belief is that it lies within this information domain that we're talking about. I know it seems kind of squishy to say that there's a specialized concept of information that's neither quite energy and not quite biological, but a vital intermediary. But when you look at all of the data, it has to be there. It has to be there yep. because cells require it to measure together in a concordant fashion. So at the moment, it's kind of a default understanding. One way to put this, and with an example, is instinct. That's, that's part of it. So for instance, I just saw a movie, I think it's called Edge of Extinction, and they have film of, um, I think it was a dolphin giving birth underwater and the baby comes out and literally within two seconds, 
the baby swimming in the same way the mother dolphin swimming. There's no way that anyone could have taught it to do that. Where is that knowledge contained? Where does it come from? Well, that's perfect. Perfect example. Here's what. In standard neo-Darwinism, the presumption would have been an easy, it's in the genes. In fact, I'm sure that's what they'd say tonight if we interviewed those people that are stalwarts for it. But it's not. It's not there. It's partly there, of course. I mean, obviously, you have to have a certain genetic componentry to, to yield certain forms. But that's because they are a memory system of the cell. They are, they are tools of the cell. The cells are the formative agents. And the cells, I believe, have their own apparatus in addition to genes that help determine form. That's an important principle in cognition-based evolution. This is a memory that the cells would have to have about their external environment. How do they know they're in water? You know, I'll, I'll compare it with a, a cow being born. A cow is born within seconds or maybe a minute or two, it's standing up and walking. Right. So the and cells yeah. in it have to know the external environment and that memory is carried through for both of these creatures, you know? So, yeah, so uh, that's, again, that's perfect. We're talking about the senome of the cell. We're saying that this senome, this new concept, is the summation of the ability of a cell to assess its information and space, the, this concept of information space that I'm talking about. That's the common platform for all the cells to react to water and instantly know that we've got to go into action in this way based on the memory component of the information space that I'm we're talking about and react to the environment in this manner instantaneously. Again, it, it, it would be so easy to say well, it's all in the genes, but uh, it, scientific information doesn't show it's there. And maybe- yeah, and, and the responses prove it, and it's not provable at all. Well, who knows what we'll find out in the future, but at the moment, in order to capture just what you're talking about, in order to understand it, we need to, to, to have this rethinking about what we are biologically, we are not automatons. We are constellations of thinking, not thinking cells, of cells that have a limited form of intelligence sufficient to maintain their self-identity, to maintain their integrity. They, in order to best maintain their integrity, they work together with other cells. This imperative is so important that it has been true since the moment life began as we can ourselves measure. The reason that where cells work together is because the context of the living circumstance is doubt. All life is doubt. All, all information is doubtful. Each person evaluates information in their own idiosyncratic way. We know that in our own lives. Yes, of course, most of us react to many things identically. But how many times do you see someone else do something crazy? That's their reaction to ambiguous information. It's great to jump off this cliff. I can't wait to do it. Well, there, there would be no divorce. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just every single. If, uh... So we, so information is is in, is ambiguous in its context. The privilege of biology is that it, it is a measuring apparatus. Cells are measuring instruments, and this is important. Two other things: cells are measuring instruments of information, and they measure information to problem solve. And what is problem solve? Prediction. Cells are prediction machines, not the machines, they're prediction, predictive entities. So are we. Every single decision we make is a predictive, whether we know it or not, we are default predicting our next course of action. Whether we consciously think about it or not, 
That's what we're doing all the time. And why is this so important? And, and I should emphasize that I'm saying that the privilege of biology is, is measurement. It's important to, no, to note that communication among cells is the lifeblood of the living circumstance. Cell-cell communication is the means by which all these cells can collaborate and cooperate and do the things I'm talking about. When they do that together, they're engineering. When they engineer, they produce phenotype, which is like arms and legs and eyes and livers. And when they, and the history of that on this planet is evolution. So what, is, what does this reduce to? What does this mean? It really means that cognition-based evolution suggests that we stop looking at evolution as simply a story of natural selection, acting on cells that just are automatically responding to stimuli. And we start thinking about it as information management. Intelligent cells measure when they work together, that's information management, problem solving, and prediction. And these are the, the, the vital differences between natural selection and Darwinism as it has been perceived and what it needs to become. This is, doesn't mean that natural selection doesn't exist. Of course it does. But what is actually, what is natural selection? Let's talk about that for a minute before we go. Okay. So all through Darwinian, neo-Darwinian literature, selection is looked on as a force. Selection pressure determines what this will happen and what that will happen. And we see this term positive selection pressure. It explains everything. In fact, it is the non-thinking way of approaching evolution. There is selection. There is, of course, selection. And what is being selected? In an information management system, what is being selected is the measuring capacity of cells. Their information management strategies are being selected. I want to give people as complete as possible the ability to read this paper. I just, that's what I want to do with this interview. So there's two things left that I want to ask you. Okay. There's two sentences in here. So uh, here it is. I'll take the last one of the abstract and then we'll get this one another. So the last sentence talks about, uh, you know, continuous self-referential cellular measurement. So we understand cells measure. Self-referential cellular measurement means the cell is measuring and it's measuring for its own purposes or it's measuring in reference to its right. condition versus the environment. Um, but you, you, you talk about the perpetual defense of individual or cellular self-identities. What does that mean? Why is there a defense of self and what does that mean? Yeah, this is, that's a, thank you for asking. It's a terrifically important aspect of understanding cells. The best way to think about cellular intelligence is that they, they know just enough to know that they can and they can protect themselves in a discretionary way. So what do I mean by that? I mean that they're not robots, that they can assess information and make living choices. What are they trying, when I say they're trying to protect self-identity, within the context of a cell, it means they're trying to protect what's called their homeostatic moment, their homeostatic uh, level. And what that means, think of it more or less as being in a cellular equilibrium. I mean, just imagine that you're, a cell is just like you. And when everything is right for you, you know, you've had the, the perfect glass of wine, whatever it is that satisfies you, you're just in the zone. It's good. Life is good. And I'm in the zone. Well, cells and we, we're not alike in the sense that cells are thinking at all the way we do. But the sense of a preferential state, which you and I know exists for every single person, 
I mean, that's why we drink, that's why we smoke, that's why we take drugs, that's why we have sex, that's why we do everything. Cells have their own state of preference. It's called homeostasis. What does it mean for cell? It probably means the proper set of gradients and the proper electrodynamic inputs, the the proper position for itself, vis-a-vis physically in in a mechanical transductive manner, vis-a-vis other cells. Cells experience pressure. Cells experience the contact of other cells. These are important things. It may mean the amount of nutrition. It means their own state of nutritional satisfaction, their own metabolism. Every cell has its own metabolism. So when we talk about self-integrity, we're talking about the cells, a simple biological plan. All cells are self-referential, meaning that they have a sense of individual discretionary preference, and they seek to defend that. And importantly, the single best way they can defend that because of their need to measure in precise information is in the collective form, which precisely explains why multicellularity exists and is absolutely predominant on this planet. So, you know, again, to reduce it, it's one thing if I measure and I, you know, because I'm measuring ambiguous things, I may be right, I may not. But if myself and 10 other people measure, if I'd say, hey, Bill, take a look at this. And, you know, someone said, take a look at this. Everyone looks at the same thing, even though they'll all measure it a bit differently, we'll still get a better outcome. And um, Yeah, yeah. Let, me, let me offer a very good example from my point of view. I mean, how many TV shows do you see in which, so, I mean, just, I don't even know what, which show is which, but take a circumstance where you've got the contestant and the host, and they've got to choose among three doors. Or, or they, they have to choose a, a, a multiple choice question in order to, to go on to the next round or get, uh, get a prize. What do they often do? They'll turn to the audience. <laughs> How often do they do that? Almost all the time. Yeah, it's every once in a while, someone's very cocky and self-confident and they'll rush to do it. But you can hear it on the radio. You can see it on TV every day. The ambiguity of information, which door do I choose? Some people are certain. Other people are certain it's the other door. I mean, again. What is the solution that is as common as dirt among humans? Collective assessment, the wisdom of crowds. So we see it in our own lives all the time. We need to enlarge our imagination to permit the thought that our cells are just capable enough to exhibit certain types of properties that we ourselves do. And in fact, we should reverse it and say, we exhibit those properties because our cells have them. We are the ultimate level-by-level connection of these elemental processes that began almost as soon as the Earth was formed, within 300 million years current assessment, which is no time at all in geologic space. So, So we should really see ourselves as properly as the product of cellular engineering, and we exhibit our responses to stresses in the way we do because we are their product. So Okay, we're just about done here. I, I just again, I want to define one more term. You talk about homeostatic equipoise. What is that, and what does that mean in plain speak? That just means that each cell is seeking its zone, its zone of happiness. Happiness being whatever a cell regards as being its preferential zone. It, again, it it's a set of gradients. It's a set of a certain molecular concentration. It's a certain position with an electrodynamic field. It is whatever it is for cell, and it'll be different for one cell to another. How does the cell assess the information so that it can get to that state through its cell? 
Okay. Well, very good. So the last thing I want to do, if you could just bear it, is I want to read yeah, just the, yeah, the title. I want to read the title now, and I want to read the abstract. And for the listeners, if we've done our job right, you'll understand a lot of this, and it'll entice you to read the paper and at least understand it. So title is Cellular Sonomic Measurements in Cognition-Based Evolution. And here's the abstract. It's just one paragraph. All living entities are cognitive and dependent on ambiguous information. Any assessment of that imprecision is necessarily a measuring function. Individual cells measure information to sustain self-referential homeostatic equipoise, which you identify as self-identity, in juxtaposition to the external environment. So I guess with the external environment. The validity of that information is improved by collective assessment. And the reception of cellular information, it obliges, you know, you put it in a fancy way, thermodynamic reactions that initiate a self-reinforcing work channel. I guess we could probably answer what that means, but we'll get to it. This expresses as natural cellular engineering and niche constructions, which become the complex interrelated tissue ecologies of holobionts like ourselves. Multicellularity is collaborative cellular information management, as we talked about, directed towards the optimization of information quality through its collective measured assessment. So again, we've talked about this. Last sentence. Biology and its evolution can now be reframed as the continuous process of self-referential cellular measurement in the perpetual defense of individual cellular self-identities through the collective form. So if you were to just plain speak, like super, super, super low level, just to restate the abstract, how would you restate it? Intelligent cells measure. They measure better together than apart. Because they can measure, they can engineer and communicate. We are their product. Okay. Well, that's excellent. So yeah, this is this is an experiment for me to do this. But um, again, I, it's, it's only because these ideas, I think, are incredibly important for all of science. So so I appreciate you coming on the interview. And uh, is there anything else that we should cover? Uh, you know, we've hinted at what's called end space, which will be, you know, another call at some point in the future. It's another concept. But uh, do you feel like we've covered the concepts in this paper in a, a layman's type way or, a, you know, explicative way? Well, it's going to be one, one other thing. The point of cells is to maintain a state of preference. But let me just explain that one little bit further as our final thing. What is actually the state of preference? The state of preference is when it is in concert with the environment. It's in equilibrium with the environment. It's not stressed. It's in equilibrium with that environment. And so what does that actually mean for a cell? It means according to the, and cells are extremely complicated. They're not simple in the slightest. They're extraordinarily crowded, active, and complex. What this means is that the cell's job is to continually internalize the environment. Internalization of the environment is what adaptation means. In other words, when you think of an organism doing this or that to adapt to the environmental stress, what it really is doing is grasping the environment and bringing it inside. And it expresses itself in biological form. I know this is a weird thought, and that's why it's best to leave for last. But that's the that's us on this planet. That's evolution in action is always trying to internalize the environment. So natural selection is making sure is judging whether the cell has measured the environment correctly to internalize it. So when you what you realize by what I'm trying to express is that we're not simply on the planet. We're not just 
within the environment. We are the environment. We are of the environment. We are the product of this continuous internalization. So we see ourselves as occupying the environment. I'm telling the listeners, no, let's go further together. Explore this tough concept. You are the environment. You have. You are the product of billions of years of the consistent internalization of this plan, and you you are part of it. And it's not a spiritual thing, but it's you are part of it in a deeply scientific biological way. Excellent. All right. Well, Bill, thanks again for coming and uh, Thank you. supporting your wisdom. I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.